I've always found piriformis syndrome a little bit tricky to understand. So on this episode of the Concast, we're going to talk about it. and sports injury therapist practicing 45 minutes outside of Toronto, Ontario, in Canada. And welcome to episode 39 of the Concast, a podcast where we discuss all things health, wellness, injuries, and fitness in an attempt to better understand the human body. For episode 39, I've chosen to talk about an injury that I've always found a little bit perplexing or a condition, I guess, that I've always found a little bit perplexing to try and hone in on and understand, and that is piriformis syndrome. And I think that many people are in a similar position to me in that it's difficult to come to a conclusion that somebody has it. It's often difficult to treat. And so I thought I would take a stab at explaining my rationale behind how I go through recognizing this, treating it, and some of the rehabilitation coaching strategies that I give to my patients. And if you're a therapist or patient listening, hopefully you'll find value in this episode. So first and foremost, what is the piriformis? The piriformis is a muscle deep in the buttock. It's coming from the anterior, the front part of your sacrum, and it's inserting into the femur or the leg bone at an area known as the greater trochanter. And this muscle is one of many deep hip external rotators that we have in the deeper aspect of the buttock area. Now, one of the interesting things about the piriformis is the piriformis can act as both an internal or an external rotator of the hip, depending upon the degree that the hip is in flexion. So typically below 60 degrees-ish of hip flexion, the piriformis is an external rotator and above 60 degrees of hip flexion, it becomes an internal rotator. The other interesting piece of anatomy surrounding the piriformis is the sciatic nerve or large nerve that feeds the majority of the muscles in our leg is running underneath the piriformis and in a small percentage of the population, anywhere from 1 to 3%, this group of people will have what's known as a bifurcating piriformis or the sciatic nerve will run right through the muscle rather than underneath it. There are also many other anatomical variances of the sciatic nerve in relation to the piriformis, but these would be the two most common. In the majority of people, the nerve is going to run underneath it, and in a small percentage of the people, the nerve is going to pierce through the muscle directly in some way, shape, or form. So when we talk about piriformis syndrome, piriformis syndrome is an aggravation to this muscle. And often what we will see in presentation is the patient will suffer from spasming, a feeling of pressure or increased tone, or almost like they've got a golf ball deep in the buttock. And this is creating localized pain and symptoms as well as discomfort. And at times can create symptoms elsewhere throughout the leg as well as the hip. So I think the first thing that I think about from an anatomy standpoint is if we are trying to make the assumption that this is the primary piece of anatomy that's involved in some of the 
local biological irritation to that area, as well as maybe the thing that's driving mechanically some of the hip issues that we're seeing. We can't only look at the piriformis in isolation. Really, the piriformis is a piece of tissue that's connected to other external rotators deep within the buttock as well. Here we have the gemelli muscles, the obturator internus muscle, just to name a few. So if we're going to address the piriformis, often what I will do is address these group of deep hip external rotators. We also want to look at the demographic of the patients that we're seeing. We do know that piriformis syndrome seems to be a little bit more prevalent in women because of something known as an increased Q angle, which is the angle between the outside part of the pelvis and the inside part of the knee. And what the Q angle dictates a lot of the time is the amount of stress that goes on at the hip as well as the knee. And with an increased Q angle, what we need is we need an increase in strength and stiffness in the hip external rotators, in particular in the gluteus medius, minimus, and maximus. Now, when we don't have that strength, often what will happen is the nervous system will recruit and increase the tone of these deep hip external rotators in an attempt to stabilize the hip during activity, whether this is running, walking, lifting. And as a result of that, increased activity, you can start to get some of the spasm, the tone, and the irritation to the sciatic nerve that's running underneath it. So in terms of symptoms that people experience with this, pain and the feeling of tightness or increased tone in the buttock is one. And then there can be associated referred pain really anywhere in the leg except the front upper portion. So you can get pain into the hamstring, you can get pain into the calf, either side of the foot, or the front or anterior aspect of the leg below the knee. And the reason that this is, is if the sciatic nerve becomes irritated, it can propagate or create symptoms along its sensory track, and the sciatic nerve is responsible for sensation in the entire back of the leg and bottom of the foot, as well as the anterior aspect of the lower leg or front of the leg below the knee, the sciatic nerve and all of its branches, I should say. So this is what's often a little bit perplexing and difficult to understand because there are so many things that can create symptoms in the leg. It's really difficult, I find, to pinpoint the sciatic nerve being the primary source of leg pain when people are feeling it. Other symptoms that patients may feel, they may get temporary relief with stretching or temporary relief with activity. However, soon after those are done, symptoms are often exacerbated further by stretching or activity, as well as pain at rest is quite common. This can be when you're relaxing in the evening, sitting down, or it can be even while sleeping and finding a comfortable position to sleep in can be often quite difficult. Now, when I see a patient in my office with a suspected piriformis syndrome, there are a few things that I want to consider and try and rule out. The first is a tendon injury to any of these external rotators that I've already mentioned. 
including the piriformis, or a tendon injury to the gluteus maximus, medius, or minimus, as these are quite common, especially in females. And there may be a few differences in how I treat or the presentation of the patient that's seeing me. If I know that I have a gluteal tendinopathy, one of the things that's really important is that I start to introduce a load management program for that patient where they can build up load and tissue stiffness over time and that tendon will start to adapt. So it is really important to try and differentiate between a tendon injury and a piriformis syndrome. This is really, really difficult to do. If you have an accompanied image already, so the person's had an ultrasound, for example, and showing that there's a tendon injury, that is a potential good indication for leading you further down a gluteal tendinopathy path. The other thing is that what I found is that the pain is a little bit more lateral or on the outside of the hip towards an area known as the greater trochanter rather than directly in the center of the buttock. This isn't always the case, but it may be a good indicator. Secondly, something that I want to think about is an irritation to a nerve known as the inferior clunial nerve. And the inferior clunial nerve is a sensory nerve, so it is allowing for the discrimination of sensation through the lower part of the buttock, and it's coming off of the lower part of the spinal cord at the levels of S2 and S3. Often if this nerve is irritated, it may in fact propagate or create the symptoms of discomfort in through the lower part of the buttock. For the therapists that are listening, at times when you're palpating along the lower part of the sacroiliac joint, close to the sacrococcygeal joint, it can often recreate some of the symptoms that the patient's feeling. If this is done in a prone position and the patient is remaining static, then often I might think about the clunial nerves. Other tissues that can be irritated locally in that area are bursa. We've got a number of sacs of fluid in the area. We've got the trochanteric bursa or a number of them. We have the ischial bursas and these can be irritated due to friction of tissue in the area. Often with this is the presence of rebound pain, which means when I'm pushing on the tissue and I let off is when they feel pain rather than when I'm actually applying pressure to it. Dull throbbing pain is a characteristic. Night pain is also a characteristic that the bursa is irritated. After bursa, I start to think a little bit further outside of the hip. So I'll move first medially and think about the sacroiliac joint. Is there inflammation or irritation to the sacroiliac joint, something known as sacroiliitis that might be referring pain across into the buttock? And for more uh, discussion on the sacroiliac joint, we talk about sacroiliac pain in episode 31 of the Concast. So certainly check that episode out. I then move a little bit higher up and think about the lumbar spine. So one of the things with piriformis syndrome is we always want to try and rule out piriformis syndrome versus a low back injury or a lumbar disc or neurological condition. 
also known as a lumbar derangement, and this can happen for a number of reasons. It can be an irritation to the disc. It can be irritation to the nerves for a variety of reasons. And three things that I help rule out lumbar injuries versus piriformis injuries, and these aren't always clear-cut, are reflexes. So are reflexes intact? Reflexes are typically intact with a piriformis syndrome where they may or may not be intact with a lumbar disc injury. The same thing goes for myotomes, is that muscle strength may be affected with a lumbar injury where it typically is not with a piriformis syndrome. And then lastly is the position of the low back. Can I put the position of the low back in a posturally relieving position? What that means is if I side bend the person through the, the back, does that make their hip pain better or worse? Typically, if I can alter hip pain by back position, that leads me to think that the back may be influencing some of the hip pain rather than the primary cause being in the hip proper. Speaking of the hip, I also want to make sure that this patient uh, may not have osteoarthritis of the hip. And most osteoarthritis of the hip will refer into the front of the hip and into the groin. But depending upon how long that's been going on for, especially if there's alterations in gait, the person has an active limp already, that may affect some of these deep hip external rotators and can either create some referred pain into the buttock or create a piriformis syndrome as well. And then you're running into something known as a comorbidity or the person has two things, osteoarthritis of the hip as well as piriformis syndrome. And then the last thing I think about, maybe this isn't MSK related at all. Maybe they've got another disease, maybe they've got a fracture and this requires further imaging or investigation Then I refer back to the family doctor. If I'm still moving along the line of piriformis syndrome, some things that I want to do to try and rule this in or give me an idea that this might be something that I'm dealing with is first palpation. So I'll push around in the area and I want to try and see whether I can recreate some of the symptoms. And typically if I'm half the distance between that area of the greater trochanter and the sacroiliac joint, I might think that that muscle is irritated and or the sciatic nerve at that level is irritated and that helps me think further down the line of a piriformis syndrome. From there, I can always do a straight leg raise. In piriformis syndrome, typically the symptoms are a little bit higher in the straight leg raise, sort of 60, 70 degrees and upward, whereas if it is a true lumbar injury, Often the symptoms are felt a little bit earlier in the straight leg raise, sort of 0 to 30 degrees, 0 to 60 degrees. If I'm up at sort of 70, 80 degrees and the patient's starting to experience pain, typically that pain will be in the buttock with a piriformis syndrome. It can refer some pain into the leg. And internally rotating the leg can increase the symptoms in that position. So that's something to keep in mind as well. Along with palpation and straight leg raise, there are a number of orthopedic tests that you can look at to attempt to rule in the piriformis syndrome. Now, the reality of it is, is that in the research, a lot of these tests in isolation are quite unreliable in terms of how sensitive 
they are to diagnosing a piriformis syndrome. Some of these tests include the piriformis test uh, or the antenna test. There's also a test known as Freiberg's sign, which is internally rotating the leg and passively pushing it against the exam table. There is something known as pace sign, which is taking the hip and passively moving it into flexion, adduction, and internal rotation, which applies a stretch to the piriformis. And then there's something known as BD sign, which is the patient lies on the, their side on the table and they abduct or raise the leg as if they're raising it out by their side. And this would recreate symptoms in the buttock as well. Now, when I'm examining a patient, I'm using these to gather information. If the patient came in and everything was clear in their exam, but say Freiberg sign, I'm not necessarily going to say that that person has piriformis syndrome. But let's say they come in, they've got all of the positive exams that I've talked about. So they're presenting with some generalized hip weakness. They've got that feeling directly in the buttock. All their reflexes and myotomes are intact. They have a positive straight leg raise above 70 degrees. They've got a positive piriformis test, Freiberg sign, Pace sign, Beattie sign. If all of these are creating some sort of symptom or discomfort, I'm then leaning more towards this is my index of suspicion here. The last thing that can be done in terms of confirmation is MRI, so an MRI can show, you know, irritation to the sciatic nerve at that level, as well as any inflammatory response around the interface between the muscle and the sciatic nerve, as well as an EMG, which looks at nerve conduction. And EMG studies can be quite accurate at determining where a nerve might be irritated and an entrapment site for a nerve. And so if the EMG was also indicating that the slowing of the nerve was at the level of the piriformis or the deep hip external rotators, then you'd be able to treat accordingly. So that offers some further valuable information. Once there's a correct diagnosis, which is half of the battle with this, there are only really a few medical interventions that are used, sometimes medication, steroidal and non-steroidal anti-inflammatories to try and manage symptoms. Sometimes muscle relaxants are given to try and manage the tone and the spasm of the muscle. And then as symptoms progress and complementary management isn't working, sometimes injections into the buttock will occur under ultrasound guidance. These are typically steroids that are injected. Now, sometimes this medical management is used in conjunction with therapy. Sometimes it's used preceding or after complementary therapy doesn't quite do the job. But there should always be some sort of management in terms of hip strength as well as trying to alleviate the symptoms in whatever way possible that is relatively non-invasive, in, in my opinion anyway. In terms of management, uh, things that I like to do to try and relieve some of the tone in this muscle, which is ultimately going to free up all of the deep hip external rotators are manual therapy, so I might do some soft tissue work in through the gluteals. I might use joint mobilization to the hip, sacroiliac joint, to try and calm down some of the tone in this area. And then from there, I really want to focus on stability. So I want to 
focus on trunk stability on the same side. I want to focus on hip dominant exercises. And I really like the half kneeling position when I'm dealing with any type of deep hip external rotator issue. And the reason that I like the half kneeling position is you can coach it quite specifically and take out the larger muscle groups, things like the quadriceps and hamstrings that often stabilize the hip when we're walking around and force the hip to work with the glute medius, maximus, minimus in conjunction with that deep hip external rotator group to help reduce some of the tone and build strength, reactivity, and, and proprioception over time. So I do a lot of my work for piriformis syndrome in that half kneeling position. This might include something as simple as balancing in the half kneeling position and I'm adding some perturbations or external forces pushing on the body. I might have them with a band and they're doing a palaf press where they're pushing straight forward holding the half kneeling position. They might do a chop or a lift which is a pattern with a TheraBand as well. And this all is creating good trunk stability and stiffness as well as good relationship between the trunk and these hip external rotators. So I really, really enjoy working with people in the half kneeling position. In terms of hip dominant strength exercises that I like to give, any hip thrust pattern or gluteal bridge pattern, sometimes these are elevated, sometimes they're not depending upon the patient. Sometimes they're double leg with a band, sometimes they're single leg with a band, also known as cook lift. These are really, again, dependent upon where the patient's at in their overall strength and journey throughout dealing with this condition. I'll also work on strength to the muscles that abduct the hip. This can be done in sideline if you need to. It can also be done in a single leg stance where you're starting to work on patterning through maybe a single leg lunge or a single leg mini squat and focusing on controlling the different planes of movement can be very, very beneficial. Lastly, one of the really valuable tools that I find or one of the really valuable exercises that I like to introduce is some type of neural flossing or neural mobilization exercise. And if this isn't something that you're using, you definitely want to take a look into it. At times when the interface between a nerve and soft tissue is irritated due to its immobility or the lack of sliding and gliding of those layers independently, inflammatory responses can occur. And there's also some research looking at what happens to the nerve there is it will start to send action potentials back to the brain. And this is documented through the research of Jeffrey Bove. When a nerve is irritated and it's sending those action potentials back to the brain, the brain has to discriminate them more often and sometimes that can result in pain and discomfort, not always. So the idea behind flossing a nerve is an attempt to restore some of this mobility and interface, free up the glide, and the hope is that this along with some of the soft tissue work that you're doing and some of the rehabilitation and management that you're doing will help the overall condition and function of the patient. The other thing I find with hip pain a lot of the time, especially if it's sharp and they're getting this spasmodic feeling, is there is a degree of apprehension that needs to be overcome as well. So coaching the patient on what the injury is, how you're going to best manage it, the fact that the body is able to manage this, you're able to restore strength and mobility and will get resolution of symptoms is an important conversation to have as well. My question for you today is, as a therapist, what things have you done to help manage 
piriformis syndrome in your patient population, what has worked for you and what is not. And if you are a patient and you've suffered from this, is there something that's really helped you alleviate some of your symptoms and gotten you back to whether it's sports that you love and enjoy, your activities of daily living? I'd love to know in the comments below. As always, folks, I hope that you found this episode to be of value to you. Have yourself a great weekend, and we'll see you in the next one.